I do want to start streaming. I would love to start streaming. And I would love to, uh, here we go, to welcome everybody to VUX World 2024, the first show of 2024. I can't believe it's like two weeks, nearly over two weeks into January and we're just kicking back off again. But I feel definitely well rested and we have an epic schedule lined up over the course of the next 12 months, kicking off with an immense conversation with Liz Stoko, who I know most of you that are into the conversation design scene will definitely know about. There's probably a lot of you as well who maybe you're not conversation designers, maybe you're more on the technical side or the strategy side, or maybe you're in the senior leadership teams. However, this conversation will be absolutely immense because as more organizations look to automate more conversations, which many more are, especially over the last 12, 18 months since the launch of ChatGPT, everyone seemingly now wants to have a conversational interface on their website. Everyone wants to have their own kind of chatbot, their own version of ChatGPT. And so when you're creating that and deploying that, how do you make sure that it is having effective conversations with customers? Well, in order to do that, you need to actually understand what conversations are and the patterns and what makes a good conversation. And so we're going to get into that with Liz in just one moment as, as we bring Liz on. But before we do that, I want to tell you about two things. Um, three things, actually. I very quickly mentioned Unpars. For those of you that were at the Unpars conference last year, you'll know that it was an absolute resounding success. We sold out. The tickets for the next Unpars are going to be going on sale in the next week. And so if you're not already subscribed to VUX World, VUX.world forward slash subscribe, do so and you'll find out first as the early bird tickets come out. And we've got some very nice surprises coming for you this year at Unpars. It's going to be bigger and better than it was last year, if you can believe that. Um, we have a webinar coming up on the 15th of February with Quick. Now, Quick have worked with a company called Loop, which is an insurance provider, and they have launched and deployed a generative AI chatbot. Now, it's absolutely amazing. I've actually been onto the website and used it myself. It is fantastic. It's unfallible, actually. Maybe myself and Liz, we could pick out some things that might be able to improve conversation-wise, but it doesn't trip up. You would expect it to hallucinate. You would expect it to, to be caught out, but it doesn't. It's absolutely fantastic. And so if you want to learn how you can take large language models and generative AI and turn those into a production-grade chatbot that's having real conversations with thousands of customers successfully, then I would encourage you to join that webinar. Go to vux.world forward slash events to do that. Now, without further ado, I have to welcome Liz Stokoe to VUX World. Liz, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I know you're a very busy person. You have uh, a book out every second month, it seems, and you're very busy with the university and research and all the speaking that you do. And so I really appreciate you uh, dedicating some time to speak to us today. Appreciate it. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for invi inviting me. Yeah. No probs, no probs. Um, so as I mentioned in the intro, you have got a wealth of experience in conversation analysis. Um, you've published, um, I'm counting six books, including the one that you're working on right now. Is that correct? It might be about that. I, I don't really think of myself as someone who writes a lot of books because my field is full of papers, you know, peer-reviewed papers, but there are a few books, I suppose, yeah. There are, there are some very good books. Uh, one of them I was reading earlier on, which I must have left in the kitchen, is uh, Talk, The Science of Conversation. Fantastic, fantastic book. Um, we'll get into maybe some, some of the things from that in a moment. I'll put all the links to all, all of this uh, stuff in the show notes as well. But for someone who doesn't know who you are, Liz, who, who's not necessarily uh, a conversation analyst or who's maybe not really deep into the conversation design community, maybe it might be worth setting with a little bit of, starting with a bit of scene setting in terms of who you are, your background and what your interest in conversation is. 
Yeah. So I'm a psychologist by background, but I do this thing called conversation analysis, uh, starting with my PhD, which was nearly 30 years ago now. And conversation analysis is an, an academic field, a discipline. It's quite multidisciplinary by now, but it started in sociology. It's a cumulative science mm -hmm. that basically shows you all of the things that all of the conversation analysts working around the world have discovered identified, described, and shared with each other about how social interaction works. Conversation analysis, the word conversation might be a slight misnomer in as much as conversation analysts are interested in action in interaction. So it, it's not just words, it's, it's everything, all of the resources that we use to interact with each other, whether that is our gestures, of course it's our words, it's our um, the, the body position that we're in, the, the gaze that we use, the intonation in our voices, all of those things that we, things in the material environment, everything that we're using to, to make meaning in interaction with each other. And um, one of the unique things I suppose about conversation analysis, at least in comparison to my field of psychology and other social sciences, is that we study real talk in the wild as it happens. So we don't simulate interaction, we don't study role-played interactions, or, or we, we might, but not, not to kind of generate and generalize from to, to a real encounter. We don't look at people in laboratories, again, unless we're actually interested in laboratory interaction. We don't survey or interview people later about a conversation that they had. So conversation analysts stick as close as you can get to the the phenomenon of interest as it actually unfolds and so that we use recordings basically we collect single cases sometimes tens hundreds maybe even more um, video or audio recordings of people interacting in the settings where that interaction matters to them which is why you can perhaps you know in, immediately see a difference between a role-played encounter where you're you're there maybe as a student of something versus um, an encounter where the, your stake in it is is the real one that you actually had in in having that conversation in the first place. Yeah, yeah. That's, I suppose that's why a lot of folks who, when you know, when we talk about doing things like user research, um, very challenging to do user research with somebody who's not really in that situation. Like a lot of people might do user research with like members of staff and stuff like that that obviously have a lot of baggage to bring with them, and so um, challenging, I suppose, when you're designing a a product of some some sort to really get that real insight, isn't it? Yeah, and, and actually a, a really nice example of that might be something, this isn't really in the conversation design world, but it's, it's, it's where some of this work that I started to do with people who are not in academia, but in, in industries of various kind came from. And this was looking at initial inquiry calls between prospective clients of a service, in this case, a mediation service, and looking at the way in these telephone conversations, um, how the, the mediator, the person who wants, if you like, wants the person who's calling as their client, how they explain what their service actually is and what, what it does, because they always have to have this moment along the conversational arc about what mediation is and, and how it might help the person calling who's, who's got a dispute. And what's so interesting about these calls and looking at them is that you see this little package of information almost where the mediator will explain what mediation is. And I found that they, they do it in one of two ways, typically. They either explain mediation as an ethos. So, you know, um, we, we're neutral, we don't take sides, we don't judge, we don't give advice, we help you do this and that, and, and the sort of philosophy behind it almost. Or they would explain it as a process. So this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. So what you've got is this moment, which always happens in the conversation, what is your service? What do you offer? 
but mediators doing it in slightly different ways. And then you can see the outcome. Did the person engage or did they start to disengage at, at this point? So you've got this naturally occurring experiment, if you like, where someone's going to become a client or not at the end of this call. And what was really fascinating was that the process based explanation got people to engage and was more likely to get people converting from caller to client. But the ethos based explanation really started to generate disengagement in the call. You know, if you've got a neighbor dispute and someone's offering you a service where they're they're impartial and they don't take sides and you know that you're lovely and your neighbor's awful, then probably you don't want to hear that. You want someone to say you're lovely and your neighbor's awful. So. So, but what but but getting to the point about user research and so on when we then go and look at you know these organizations websites and leaflets and how mediation is explained on those static texts or you ask mediators you know how would you explain it they tend to go with ethos not process and you kind of have to assume that people aren't they just don't know this you know they're not, they're not trying to discourage people from from being a client they're trying to encourage but what you've got is if, if you ask people or run a focus group where people don't have that immediate stake in the encounter what kind of explanation would entice you into mediation i'm just not convinced at all that people can articulate that when they're not like in the market to be a client right now and so that's a really nice way where you can see conversation and analytic data which is our recordings gives you insights in a very very useful way that you can immediately implement and in this case you know the mediation centers can just say something else when it comes to explaining mediation on their website or or on their in the calls mm. there's, there's a there's a really good example of that i can't remember exactly the specific details so i'm probably going to get it wrong but is where there was some user research taking place and a bunch of people were brought into an environment they were given this product to test and they were you know asked to feedback on it what do you think about it would you use it oh yeah definitely use it oh yeah it's fantastic and on the way out, they were given a choice to either take the product home with them or take a $25 gift voucher. And 99% of them took the $25 gift voucher. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So I suppose you've, you've in, in a roundabout way, answered my next question, which is conversation analysis. Why uh, Why do it? So why why does the practice exist? Is Is it for the example you'd give there, which is that, it can help people become better at conversations and therefore have better relationships and, and get better business results or, or uh, relationship results wise. Like, what, How would you define if someone says, why do you do conversation analysis? How would you answer that question? Uh, I suppose I would start by saying I can only speak for myself. There are lots of other conversation analysts out there who might answer this differently. And certainly over the trajectory of my, my research career, if you like, I've become much more interested in being able to uh, yeah, as I say, identify and describe what people who are experts or are experienced professionals of various kinds, what it is that they're actually doing, because almost always you find that in that organization or in that domain, those practices that you can show are really effective actually aren't described anywhere. They're not in the guidance. They're not on the scripts. They're not they're not in someone hasn't written it down anywhere. And so just in a very basic way, if you if, if you want to learn from your expert colleagues, you can ask people what what were you doing that worked but we just know from not just conversation and being a conversation analyst but being a psychologist that people aren't very good at introspecting they they'll give you their account of what they think they do and it's as good as their memory their the way they've spun it to tell you now for this reason so so we know that it's really worth looking at what actually happens in encounters 
Um, obviously, there's, you know, the, the work that I do builds off all of the rest of the field. And a lot of people are doing conversation analytic research to just describe the machinery of social interaction and everything kind of, as I say, it's cumulative. I can't do my work unless everyone is, is really understanding and describing the, the, the systematic ways in which we interact with each other. But I think, um, at least for me, the reason for doing it is because it really enables you to pin down phenomenon that people are incredibly interested in, um, but in ways that are quite different from, you know, yeah, asking people about it later or, or simulating it or experimenting upon it. So one of the things that I've done quite a bit of work on is what I'm, you might think of as isms in interaction. So prejudice of various kinds, say racism or ageism or, or sexism. And, and how what does that actually look like when you when these sequences of conversations unfold and also if you're if you're in the presence of, of an if you're if you're participating in, in an encounter and somebody says something problematic what, what would you do and of course there's lots of communication training type places where you might discuss that with people who are in the training but again it's one of those situations where what you say you would do in a training environment where your boss might be or your colleagues where you're you're kind of accountable to seem like the kind of person who would intervene just doesn't necessarily look the same as what we typically see people doing in response to something that sounds like it it could be a possible a possibly racist remark and the other thing which i think is really valuable in this particular um context is that the things that are effective to sort of halt the progress of a sequence where something problematic is unfolding can actually be far more subtle than needing a really overt challenge so to understand that actually a really small thing will intervene and stop that thing happening or, or progressing further you know in, in a way that's might be quite effective in that situation where you don't want to immediately have a huge conflict but you do want to mark the fact that you've noticed something problematic so it's again it's just about this is, let's learn from what people do rather than learn from people pretending to do the thing in some other setting or asking people later about the thing that they're doing let's just look at the thing mm, yeah that's a good idea um so when it comes to conversational interfaces chatbots, conversational AI, voice assistants, things like that. One of the things that I often get asked is, can how can we make this more conversational? That's a question. And when people think about like ChatGPT, something that seems to understand you all the time now, and they think of that as conversational. And so how and when so when some if someone's, you know, working on a chatbot or something like that and they're getting this question, how can we make it more conversational? What is what does that mean? For you, if someone says, "How can I make this conversation more conversational?" What what does conversational even even mean to someone who analyzes conversations? Um, I think for me, it means something quite sort of process driven, almost, or or, or mechanical. Uh, which might sound kind of bloodless and cold, given that, it's, that you know we, all of our interesting moments are lived through conversations in our lives. But I think one of the things that I've noticed a, a lot when I'm either working with companies or just kind of looking at products myself is that this conversational can often seem to translate into, and, and I'm you know I'm, I'm just going to stereotype for the sake of brevity, but you know emojis or informal language or rapport type stuff small talk those sorts of things whereas instead i think it's much more useful for people to understand conversation as a systematically ordered 
series of turns it, it, that, that kind of are supposed to be leading somewhere and to think about um what what is it that a really effective conversation which is in the end what everybody wants what 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 is comprising that and it may or may not be small talk small talk's got its place but it's often not in these these interactions so you're thinking about how do we move through a, a, a sequence a series of turns in a way that progresses the reason that you've got having that encounter in the first place in the smoothest way with the least friction with the least misunderstanding with the least burden on either party to kind of keep fixing things and it, it, it's about that it's it's about going from you know in, in a way a to b in the smoothest possible way so for, for me it's about thinking conversation analysis shows how systematic and organized conversation is i would say you know any any humans having interactions maybe interactional is, is is a better way to think about it but conversational i think i feel as though it sends you down not always very productive design routes maybe or, or decisions that you're making about something that is seems to cash out as informality and fun and rapport and relationships rather than focus on the the, the things that are being done and so I mean, I don't know if this is a useful example, but um, a, a colleague, uh, a really famous conversation analyst, uh, John Heritage, has done lots of work on, lot, you know, in fact, I, go, I, rec I recommend people go and just dig out his work. But there's, there's a really nice series of studies that he conducted with other collaborators looking at uh, midwives talking or health visitors talking to new parents. And the, 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 the health professionals got a form to fill in, a paper form. And this is why this is what I think is useful as an analogy for conversational. So this form has got to be filled in, but the, the health professional doesn't just give it to the new parent and just say fill in all this form. They, they kind of go through the form and turn this paper document into a sort of, you know, a bit of a bit of a survey Q&A um, to collect all the information from from the people they're talking to. And what you basically see here is how the the professional turns all the things that sound a bit strange on the form they move the order of information around they don't just say things like name occupation they turn those into questions that flow from one thing to the next and they do it in a way that you end up it's very human it's conversational but it's not like it's full of smiles or or bits of small talk it's just going through and turning the activity that needs to be done into this smooth frictionless interaction that is designed for the person that they're talking to so, something like that yeah yeah very nice um we've got we've got quite a few questions coming from through uh linkedin definitely if you're tuning in on linkedin please keep those questions coming i'll do as very much very best as we can to to get those questions to liz um in a sec um so having analyzed lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations um are there any kind of principles that rise to the surface if you were to you know if you were advising a, a bunch of designers whose job it is to create essentially and in, in the first instance synthetic conversations because when you design a conversation you're only designing it there's only one half of the party there really because it's just it's a designer in a room designing something that really should be done with another person so for a designer designing a conversation it's intended to be had with with a a user, a member of the public, a customer. Are there any principles that you would dig out from the top of your head from from analysing so many conversations that you think should be really taken into account when when trying to design conversations uh, for a chatbot or something similar? 
Yeah, the, and these are the these are the the, the sort of um, concepts or you know things that that conversation analysts have identified and and written about extensively. So you can, if you just Google these terms in conversational analysis, you'll come up with lots of papers as well. But the, there's there's two things that I immediately think of. One of them we call recipient design, um, and, and they're connected. And the other one is is just progressivity. So the first one, recipient design, is is basically the idea that you are with every turn you take designing what you do for the person that you're talking to by which we might mean what you who they are who you are to each other or who you've established you are to each other because that's constantly being updated almost you know with every turn we're kind of updating status um so that's important too um it means that on the one hand you can you can personalize an interaction and use personas and, and that kind of concept in in uh, conversation design but 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 sometimes what you don't really want is to aim for your presumed persona you want to think about stripping back and thinking what the core actions and activities are going to be in this conversation maybe maybe before you think about your persona um, because the the more identifying the core actions that need to occur in a sequence is very important um, and then you might think a, a little bit about how, how for, let me think of, a, of, of an example so in some sales calls that i've looked at uh where, where people are phoning up to buy a, a product there's a there's a nice example where somebody phones up they want to buy windows and doors and they, they ask you know do you supply and install windows and the company come back and say yes we do and then they say how did you hear about us and this is before we've got to anything about the product that the that the customer wants and the customer answers the question but after there's a delay and then a bit of a speech perturbation showing you know they weren't really expecting this question to be happening at this point in the conversation but this 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 is also not really so it's not really designed for the recipient right now who hasn't explained what they want or anything like that so far and it's also designed in a way that that kind of presumes the entitlement of the company to ask the question how did you hear about us um, at the wrong place in the encounter so all of these things are sort of slowing down the progress of the call because we haven't really thought about our recipient and where they're at in the call um, it, it's it's quite um it, it presumes that the customer is obliged to give you the information which is kind of marketing useful marketing information for the company and it just sort of slows down the progress of the call before we've got to the main reason why someone has called you in the first place and it's not designed for this particular recipient it's it's got that kind of slightly scripted quality to it where we just ask everybody this at this point in the call so immediately the person feels like they're not it's not really designed for me this is what you do to everybody so you've got this kind of conflation of poor recipient design and kind of suspending the progress of what the call has got on their mind right now because they they weren't really expecting to give you marketing information at this point in the call and what we see in, in other more effective ways of doing this basic project is to for the for the for the salesperson if you like to take all of the information about what it is that the the caller is wanting with regards to their windows and doors and when they get to the end of the business and we, we've sort of exhausted everything that the caller wants you can then say something like oh just before you go would you mind telling us where you how, how you heard about us and what this does is it's designed for the recipient, if you like, in as much as we, we, I can see that all of your business, all of the things that you want have been dealt with now. And it also sort of reduces, it, it tends to the, 
business's entitlement to ask this question. So it's more like you'd be doing us a favor rather than you're obliged to give us inf this information. So it reduces that pushiness, if you like, that sound of the question as being rather pushy. And it comes at the end of the conversation after dealing with the customer. So this, this idea of the marketing question, let's just say that is your, that's the thing that you want to have in the conversation somewhere. From looking at how these conversations really run off, you can see where to place them sequentially in the overall conversation and how to design them and how to think about your recipient and where they're at in the call. All of those things working together is, is ideal. Mm. That reminds me of, um, I once did some work on kind of the complaints processing uh, process for a company. And through doing some research, what we found is that if you, in a complaints form, there's lots of information that you need to give. So, for example, what was the product or service and what's your contact details, where do you live and then what's your issue. And that's kind of how a lot of these things were structured was that they'd have a big data capture at the very beginning. And then you would say, what's, what's your complaint? And we found actually by flipping that around and saying, what's your complaint? And just having the user then just, you know, vent. Because that's all they really want to do. They want to vent. Yeah. And what ends up happening is they've committed now to writing 500 words. So they're going to finish the form. So all those details that, you that you know, might be annoying, or oh, my address and email. You should know my email. I've, I've, I already bank, I've bank with you. I shop with you. You know, so all of those little things that would get frustrating tended to be more overlooked because they'd already invested in that upfront kind of thing. So you kind of served their need first, which is let them rant, let them get everything down. And then there's a little bit more leeway that you've got at the back end of that because they've already invested so much into it, you know. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I can sort of show you those moments unfolding in lots of conversations as well, where, you know, having having if somebody's called you, they've got a reason for calling. And so actually, you know, and again, in, in conversation analysis, this, this reason for the call slot and what happens right at the start of that of the conversation is always incredibly interesting but letting people actually articulate their reason for contacting you or getting in touch is i mean it's, in a way it's a no-brainer but it, it is interesting also to see how many organizations will put things in the way of of making of, of that progress through the the core activity that the caller or the customer or the client wants to do and so yeah you, you're just immediately getting people's backs up by by you know they're motivated enough to to contact you but but now you've kind of put barriers in the way of them progressing what they wanted to do in that in that moment yeah that's probably why ivr systems are so frustrating because all you want to do is just get to whatever you want to do and it's like press one then press two then press three um yeah there's yeah. a lot of interesting things that, I mean, we met last week, didn't we? And there was a lot of interesting kind of questions that came um, after you gave the talk that you gave. And one of the things I found quite interesting was that you gave a lot of examples where in conversation, people are either declining something by not not explicitly declining something. They were just give a reason or something like, do you, do you want to go out tonight? Oh, well, I'd love to. Um, the only thing is I'm, I'm kind of doing this. So they won't say no, directly no. They will say something else but that means no. And mm. another thing that you mentioned there in, in the, you know, the kind of, um, maybe it might apply to, to some of the things you, men you mentioned earlier on around prejudice and stuff like that. But rather than explicitly saying no, some people would just pause. Mm. And that pause is thinking time that means they're not kind of going to, you know, they're not going to say yes. Um, 
I'm wondering whether if there's if there's any other examples of that that you could share would be really useful. And then secondly, is though are those behaviours applicable to designing a staged conversation, for want of a better phrase, or, or are they just something that's specifically unique to human conversation? I think um, it, with answering the second part first, I think the, there are there are aspects and insights from conversation analytic research that can be applied to any any you know customer or interaction journey because basically what you're looking at and starting with is this idea of of action. So conversation analysis is all about action in interaction and and actually maybe maybe we can come back to this later but i think one of the mistakes that we quite often focus on in the conversational technology world might and the idea of actually natural language processing maybe this is very controversial is that we focus on language rather than action so one of the things that it'd be great for people to you know if, if nothing else you take away from this it's to think about how do we do actions in interaction and so when it comes to you know people requesting things and saying no to things but without ever making a request apparently or without ever actually doing a declination this is quite important to understand so if you think about something like a request and yeah as i say one of the examples that i gave was somebody calling a calling a friend or maybe they weren't that friendly maybe colleagues we don't really know quite what their relationship was but basically the call some this this guy donnie phones somebody called marsha and says guess what my car is stalled and he doesn't say to the person he's calling um could you come and give me a lift but she totally recognizes that as you know a request for a lift and then she doesn't say no i can't give you a lift she she says she's about to go out and so they both understand what that was about in 30 seconds and yet the obvious actions aren't really part of the interaction and so one one thing to think about when you're you know creating slots for let's say a customer or a user to write their request is to understand that the words people often use to put together a, a request all of the resources that we use to create the action might not be the really obvious ones and that pe and, and actually we see routinely that people don't make make a request they describe a situation and then you know ideally the person that is on the receiving end of this description of a problem maybe will then make an offer without a request ever even happening and it's just really common that you see these patterns in in interaction so i think understanding that action is what we need to focus on and then understanding of course we know that you know language language permits us to to you know ask for an appointment in many different ways you can say would it be possible to get an appointment i need an appointment could i make an appointment please there are a lot we know that language allows us to build those different ways of asking for something but to, to go one step further and to understand that people might not even do something that really obviously looks like a request they might describe something else like god my eyes really sore oh do, do you need an appointment <laughs> kind yeah. of thing and yeah. just to, just to see that this is very very regular that we that we don't always do not, not just that we build our requests with different words in the language but also that we might do other things than make a request even though it's completely clear that it's a request yeah yeah, that makes perfect sense. And there's a really great example in uh, in your book talk, which if if anyone's a Friends fan and also interested in conversation design, then that book is spot on because it's just full of Friends references, which is <laughs> ideal. But there's one example, which is that Ross is asking Rachel whether or not she can come and help him uh, lift his sofa and move his sofa. And he says something like, hey, Rachel, what are you up to tonight? 
and she says something like, oh, I was supposed to go on my honeymoon, but I'm not or whatever. And he, mm-hmm. and he, and he, he says, oh, well, Chandler and Joey are going to come round mine to help me move my sofa. Mm-hmm. And so that's him asking her if she wants to come and join. And her response is, oh, I'd love to, but I'm not really in the mood. And so mm-hmm. it's like there's no direct ask at all in that. And if you just saw that sentence on its own, you wouldn't think out of context, you wouldn't think that that's actually an ask for anything. So it, there's a lot of subtext that goes on in conversations. And maybe that's probably, potentially, I don't know this, but could be maybe why some chatbots are particularly poor because they deal with the direct ask, I want to book an appointment, can I have an appointment, please, rather than my eyes have been really irritating me, I don't know whether I need to speak to somebody or not. You know, that's not a, it's kind of, the the, the ask there really is, like, do I need an appointment is the question. But it's not an explicit ask, is it? So I'm wondering whether there's anything that we can. I mean, is, it a te- is that a technology problem in understanding these things, or is it more of a, a a kind of designer knowledge gap in that we're maybe not thinking about some of these uh, ways in which people can can speak? I mean, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, but I, in terms of what the technology can and can't do, but I, I do think that some of these some of these gaps are kind of understandable because. We, you know, we all spend our our lives talking. We've got our whole lifetime's experience of interaction. So it's, it, I think it's in a way, it's it's quite understandable that people think, well, I know how this interaction would would work. Um, but it is also interesting that despite the fact that we all know how interaction works since we participate in them all the time, we're not very good at going meta on what they look like. Even though when you show these this you know this call where someone says my car's stalled, it's not like not we all understand what's going on. But if you if you say to people right, I want you to imagine what somebody asking for a ride looks like, you 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 probably don't start with guess what. <laughs> but even even though even though you really see how this just is is completely ordinary and very very comprehensible. Um, in in conversations that, that that are real ones. So one of the things that I haven't, you know, on, on my agenda, and and especially with with uh, my collaborators on on this particular project around conversation analysis and conversation design, which is Saul Albert from Luffer and Kathy uh, Pearl from Google, is is this this two way translation between conversation design and, and conversation analysis, and and bringing. If, if you like taking each thing that we probably know about, like repair or 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 question or request, and actually just breaking them all down, so that we can see here's like here's like ten things about this particular phenomenon that seems already common or you know fairly well understood in in conversation design, partly so that they can the designs can sort of finesse the design, but also think about what might be sensible moonshots for the future or what what would we actually want of conversational user faces to be able to do that humans do without any problems really and some of them seem like they might generate interesting projects and some of them seem like it would be crazy to get people to do that mm. yeah or your chatbots to do that yeah definitely i mean i like bob moore's book the um they're not it's not the studies in conversational ux design there's another one it's com- it's just called conversational ux design essentially and i think yeah. that was the first time i'd come across that kind of conversation analysis language you know he speaks yeah. about sequences expandable sequences adjacency pairs and he's kind of like yeah. that was the first time i'd really seen it boiled down into ah right <laughs> this is what we're actually doing <laughs> yeah. and someone someone understands what it's actually called um yeah. but yeah it's amazing and, and you're right that yeah people just talk without even thinking about it they don't know you know why they say what they say in the way that they say it and i think being able to understand it so that you can then properly design for it is crucial. I would say that conversation analysis is arguably 
probably the most important discipline for a conversation designer today, really. You can't really design conversations unless you know how they work, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, and in a way, you know, in some ways, yeah, it's nothing special because we are really just, you know, showing what people are already doing. So in that sense, it shouldn't be a huge leap, or or, or even, you know, yeah, if if you sort of feel like, oh, uh, this all sounds a bit strange, it's not really, you know, it's it's we're we're we're, we're scientifically describing and showing how systematic it is these things that we're doing all the time, and yeah, and Bob 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 Moore is a trained conversation analyst as well, and so yeah, I really recommend. Um, his books. Um, I think even even just getting to go from, as I say, like create, you know, don't just create a slot for, you know, write your request here, but actually think about in this particular environment, how 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 many steps before we get to the request might be relevant to this particular service or this particular activity, and how many you know, how many contingencies might we need to deal with to get the request fulfilled and so in in the talk book i talk a little bit about um you know make asking an you know how do you how do you how do you invite someone to do something um like you just said with the friends example but i've got like eight lines of of just invented dialogue but just to sort of give you the idea and the the core invitation and acceptance are at lines three and line six i think so like so at line three you know the invitation is do you want to come for lunch and at line six the person says yes so that that is the base core action in this little sequence and we call them first pair parts and second pair parts and there's a whole language for describing these actions and where they appear in a sequence and this is very important because what that then allows you to see is why we do what we might we call them pre-expansions so you might say are you free tomorrow um and then you get a yes or a no and depending on whether you get you know the what re, what the response is to that pre-question which is at line one what happens at line two then will should stop you delivering line three if you didn't get a go ahead at line two so if you said what you're doing tomorrow oh i'm i've got meetings all day then that should stop the launch of the of the base action of the invitation because you're you don't want to put someone in the position that they now can't fulfill you know yeah. and progress make make that smooth progress because then they'd have to say well i just told you that i'm you know I'm, I'm not free tomorrow and then you're in this weird situation so so you've got you know what are you doing tomorrow uh yeah free yeah, I, yeah I'm, not, I'm not busy do you want to come for lunch and then you might get well actually i'm, I'm I've, I've got a slot between one and two but i'd have to be back by two and then depend you know so the contingency might be relevant to whether or not the person can accept the invitation and then you'll get you know something next and then and then you'll get the acceptance so yeah don't don't worry we can get back by two great and then you might get what we call a post expansion where someone will say well i'll i'll knock at your office door at at, at 12:30 and you get this little sort of finishing off little post expansion sequence as well so it's eight lines it's not complicated it's it's totally recognizable as things we do all the time but what is nice is that you can describe each of these things and show how systematically they appear in conversation and so these are the things that i think conversation designers if they're not already familiar with with these ways in which sequences have a base action the core thing that you're after there might be some pre-expansion there might be something in between the inserted bit and there might be something after but even so the whole thing is is over and done with quite quickly um just just while i'm on this um there's there's another way where you see the expanded sequence as a problem so i've got this example from field notes in a cafe where i ask um having got my cup of tea um do you have wi-fi and what doesn't happen next is 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 even though the cafe does have wi-fi i'm not they don't give me the code or say yes here's they don't recognize it as a request they 
sort of rather maybe disingenuously, maybe rudely just say yes. And so then I'm in the position of having to expand the sequence and say, oh, so can customers use it? Yes, they can. And, and you, you sort of think if you ever feel like you had to push for something or this was bad <laughs> service, you can actually describe it in terms of, you know, first pair parts, second pair parts and base actions and, and all those things. Um, but in this particular case, obviously, you know, the, the smoothest interaction would be do you have Wi-Fi. Yes, here's the code. So, you know, both 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 attending to the grammatical form of the yes, no question, but also understanding that that yes, no question is a vehicle for a request. And so, you know, a, a complete response would be positive and fulfilling the request. But what's even nicer is, and, and again, this this speaks to this whole issue of if you create in your chatbot a place for writing your request, you're missing the fact that in real conversations, everyday conversations, we, we're quite often setting up scenarios so that we don't have to make a request. So um, in another cafe, as I get my cup of tea, the cafe staff says, oh, if you need the Wi-Fi, here's the code. So they've made an offer. So I now don't even need to do a request. And of course, that's the best customer service of all in a way. But but as, as we were talking about before with, you know, um, the eye test or, or something like that, where you say, I've got a really sore eye um, and you describe a problem and people will then make an offer rather than you saying, I've got a really sore eye. Can I make an appointment? And and of course, some of this stuff is is might feel like, oh, it doesn't it doesn't really matter for chatbots or it doesn't really matter for Alexas. But some some of the things probably do matter. And so it's that what's the sweet spot between what conversation analysts know about how this all works and what the conversations designers, what can they leverage in ways that make their products better? Mm, definitely, definitely. Um, brilliant. I've got, I've got some, um, not necessarily quick fire questions as such, but as a list of things that uh, conversation designers do or include in their chatbots and whatnot. <clears throat> and I would love it if you were able to comment on whether or not that is a good practice and necessary or a bad practice and pointless. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The first one is trying to pass off your chatbot as human. Hmm. I, 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 my, my, my instinct is to say bad. Um, but it depends what you mean by human. So I would say if, if you mean something that is really good at picking up that recipient design piece, understanding what it is that somebody wants and progressing through an encounter smoothly with the least amount of friction, then that that's good a good thing to aim for. But if you're trying to fool people into this is a human call taker uh, or caller in, in ways that immediately makes you start to think about um, what a scam call might look like and how you can make that look incredibly authentic using AI, then, then that's obviously quite, quite worrying. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think also, and, and Kathy and Saul and I have talked a lot about, if you have a chat bot or a, you know, or a, a voice bot or whatever it might be that, that seems to be passing as human, then, but actually then starts to fail, or it, it might, it, you, you can end up setting up expectations of, of how useful this tool is going to be down the line once you've got past that little first bit where you fooled somebody and then immediately you're into like a terrible conversation something very dissatisfying it, you've set up expectations that can't be met so i think you know there's not a simple answer to that one i don't think uh, i think human as in you know really you know the best of how humans design their interactions and and yes that's good but but sort of fake human 
uh, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just too old for for really embracing fake humans. <laughs> what, what 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 about explicitly stating upfront that you are a AI chatbot? I mean, I think again, this is a, an empirical question, really, because I've, I've literally just been talking to some colleagues, including Saul and some other collaborators, where we were looking at some, you know, very human-sounding uh voice assistants and the the voice assistant says it's a voice assistant but in a way that sounds very human and it does it doesn't seem to create any issues in in the encounter um i also know though from speaking to conversation designers and 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 different companies that that some people will see you're speaking to a chatbot and just immediately like disengage and make a call so i think it's it, it seems to be more like not whether it's a chatbot or not, but whether that first point of in, that first point of contact looks like it's going to take you somewhere useful. And I don't know what, how you would cash that out in technology, but to me, that's what it is. You know, if you see a chat window, can you tell that this has probably only got five pre-programmed responses that it can, or, or five things that it might be able to deal with, deal with? Because I feel like even I can you pretty much spot that and think, oh, I, I can tell that's not going to be a very responsive one to my particular situation. I've already looked at the FAQs. I know that this isn't going to help me. Um, so there is something, I think, and then, and this isn't my expertise at all, but there must be something in the the, the, the design of, of the chatbot that conveys to people, this is going to help me or this is not going to help me. And, I, and that's not quite the same thing as should it be a chatbot or not or an AI or not. Yeah, fair enough. What about designing a persona or a personality for your chatbot? I think the the more important thing than than having some kind of tone of voice type focus on a persona is, is that notion of recipient design. And, and I'm glad you've asked me this because it allows me to come back to something which I didn't say earlier. So um, I did some work with Marie Flinkfeld and Sophie Parslow uh, a couple of years ago, and we've got this uh, paper again. People can read it. And basically, we're looking at how one how how call takers in different service encounters ask their customer or their user for their email address, which is a very again, you know, imagine you know, type your email address and just like stick it in there. And what's so nice about what we see here is how the call takers are able to pick up. And they show that they're picking up all sorts of things that everything up until this moment in the conversation, the caller, the, the user has, has sort of displayed about themselves such that the design of that request for email typically happens in one of two ways. So it basically is, um, and what's your email? So we're asking you a series of questions. So your name, surname, and what's your email address? And then there's, and it's designed as, I, you know, I'm I'm making the assumption now that you're the kind of person who has email, uses email, can give me the email address, no problem. But we also see in some other calls where the call taker will say, "And do you have email at all?" And or and or something like, um, "And do you have access to the internet?" And so they might do one of those pre pre requests. So sort of rather than ask for the email, they they've picked up something in the call that suggests maybe this person doesn't have access to the internet. And so rather than just say what's your email and assuming that they do and leaving the customer in the place of having to say, oh, actually, I don't have email and disclose something about themselves, they design it so that they sort of take a step back to, so that they don't then ask the question in the wrong way. And, and it, this, this level of recipient design for the person that they have discovered themselves talking to 
rather than thinking everyone's going to be the same in my you know all our customers have this type of persona or we're, de- we're designing in this segment that that agility that humans have turn by turn by turn by turn taking things in adding extras taking out whole sequences is is ideally what you're after i think that's more important than thinking about a persona at least in the first instance very good very good um i asked you this the other day and your answer was really good so i'll ask it again <clears throat> a lot of the ones a lot, a lot of designers in that design phase will role play conversations and do table reads with each other and things like that sometimes they'll even sit back to back on chairs and you know all that kind of stuff is that good practice or or no no next question so why is that <clears throat> i think we touched on this very briefly kind of uh, yeah. theme, theme wise earlier on didn't we yeah i think the answer is because people aren't very good at introspecting remembering thinking about whether or not if they don't have a real stake in this encounter right now so if they're not going to become a client of the service or they don't have excruciating toothache right now or whatever it might whatever it might be or they don't actually have a complaint because they're not really a customer of the bank then you're basically going to see the, that difference in, of, of kind of contingency and stake in the encounter because that's what we see in real conversations so i think to, you know and i've done some research in a couple of environments where i've basically shown the difference between the role-played encounter not just what the service provider is doing but where with the service user you know they're doing things that you would never really see in the like let's say the real encounter or the encounter where their stake in it isn't role-playing and testing out um a platform but but being somebody who needs help and they're diff- they're different things and so I, I would say that you know i made myself unpopular in all sorts of ways talking about role play um and sim- and sort of simulated interactions but <clears throat> i think the the constructive response to that is well you don't need to because you can often really learn from what's actually happening in real encounters and that's it's i think it's good to start there with what people are actually doing and then if you want to build build your role play scenarios at least from something which is authentic from the you know from the first place rather than guessing at what might be useful to to role play Mm, very good yeah i've got some questions from linkedin if uh, if we have a little bit of time now so let's have a look at uh, i'll start from the top and i'll pick out some ones there's a question here which gets back at what we were talking about earlier on which is around um that example where there's a conversation there may be something in there like racist or, or some discrimination comments or something like that. Uh, Kinsey Clark asks, wouldn't an intervention in the case that you described be more indicative of a person's courage or willingness to confront and less about their conversation skills? Yes. And, but, yes, but, or yes, and. So, um, I, again, I can, maybe I can put this in the chat later. So me and some colleagues a few years ago, we, we made a one-sider with eight different things that we see people actually doing in in the in response to a possible ism in interaction. And we called it how to say when it's not okay. So I can send that and put I'll, mm. I'll put it on LinkedIn. Um, and basically what you see is that sometimes people will challenge the other party and call out the, the egregious behavior or whatever it might have been. Uh, and, and what's interesting to see there is what the likely tra- subsequent trajectory of that conversation, where, where that's going to go. And to think about in the moment, the, the wider conversation, I suppose, the relationship that you're in, the, the power differential between 
you and the person and, and you know is it is it a safe environment to do that kind of calling out will you get support you know so, so it's, it's kind of complicated to just think that you can have you can have a view you can have a politics you can have a sense of i'm the kind of person who would call those things out but that's why it's actually quite useful to see what people actually do and we've got these like eight different things that we we typically see people do and one of the one of them which is actually quite powerful is is if is to stay silent mm. the act, so actually saying nothing can be quite a, a a sort of disaffiliative thing to do and so and some of this work comes from working with mediators who are um you know impartial by by sort of by principle and so i was quite interested in what challenges a mediator's impartiality and actually a potentially racist client is one space where they're not in, you know they might not be impartial anymore they might decide to sort of take us an explicit stance and, and and actually this whole issue led to so many interesting discussions with mediation professionals where some of them would say i would challenge some of them say i wouldn't they think about the consequences but i think it's always worth again just looking at what people actually do in these scenarios and understanding that actually saying nothing or which in other words staying silent and resisting the imperative to say anything at all you know, after two seconds, probably what will happen is that the person who is the person with the problematic behaviour will probably do a bit of a self-correction. Um, they they might not always, but but you definitely see that that that, that staying silent in response will gen, will will slightly change the trajectory of the encounter. And so then that and that might be easier for you in your situation with with your own. Um, you know, the, the, the type of person you are, the category of person you are, the status in the environment, all of those things are, are at play um, in these moments. Uh, and these things happen in split seconds as well. So it's actually really fascinating to watch people actually dealing with these things in the moment. Mm. And that can be more powerful and useful than actually telling each other what we do in those situations and then sort of privately think, oh, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd have the confidence to do that and feeling bad in, in that room and, and actually seeing other things might work better anyway. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, question from Lorraine. Shout out to Lorraine. Uh, how could you use conversation analysis to enhance fraud prevention in financial services? Or could you use conversation analysis for that? Yeah, I, th I think the answer to that question is is probably yes. Um, and I don't, maybe there's immediately two scenarios. You know, one of them is um, the development of an AI augmented scam where voice and and large language models are somehow you know learning how to do a really successful scam and that might be slightly separate from you know if if we looked at lots of scam or fraudulent calls where we just know it's two humans talking to each other then i don't want to start there kind of thing and then and then try to identify uh and describe and and precisely i yeah precisely identify the things that that are that the scammer or the fraudster is is deploying to to make that conversation happen, um, and I haven't really done that kind of work myself yet, but I, I'm sure that will be a really useful space for conversation analysts to get into. Mm. The, the most related space to that, I suppose, at the, so far has been looking at um, emergency calls, um, and I think some people might have heard me talking about this, where we've got where somebody calls up it, it, I, I'm, it, 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 all of the calls that i'm particularly interested in are domestic violence calls where the 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 victim can't use all the obvious words to build the request so back to that you know what you know put your request here they can't say my i'm a victim of domestic violence or there's somebody in my house or you know my partner's got a gun or whatever they can't do it because they're because that partner is that person is in 
in the space so they have to use other words and pretend to have a different kind of conversation and what is so fascinating about this is that the context of which we, we might think is the thing that is solving the problem for the call taker because the call takers are you know are, are amazingly good at, at, at identifying a genuine i would want to yeah, well, I'd like a pizza for delivery. They, they're, they're very good at spotting when that is means something else. But it's not because you're phoning the police. It's not that sort of sense of like the wider context is what is working here. Because in this particular situation, the police are sifting all the time, like genuine, malicious, nuisance, fraud, if you like, calls to the police. That, that like one of the main tasks is: is this a real one? If you like, and of course, you know, not people are, are might be making these calls not because they're they're deliberately they're deliberately trying to waste the police's time, but they might be unwell. There's all sorts of reasons why, you know, trying to figure out what this actually is as a request is is an, an amazing skill that we can actually all learn from as conversation analysts and conversation designers. And 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 in this particular case, um, the the the, con the, the call center person recognizes that this is a, a person in genuine need of you know, emergency assistance by the placement of, of the turns in the conversation. So basically, um, the caller, I, I mean, a crude way to describe it is they keep interrupting the call taker in a way that kind of seems to convey quite readily to the call taker that this person isn't being aggressive. What they're doing is sort of doing something like, if you were a pizza delivery service, this is where I tell you this thing about the type of pizza that I want and hear me as doing that. And so if we wanted to describe what, how do you come across as someone who is wanting the other person on the other end of the phone to recognize that I'm a genuine person in need, but I'm going, I need you to pretend with me without ever mm. saying it. And yeah. at the same time, the person who's in the house also hearing that that sounds like a call to pizza. I mean, it's amazing what humans do, but you can actually describe quite precisely what it is that the call taker is picking up on. And yet I'm pretty convinced that if you ask, if you interview people, what is it? it they're not going to be saying, oh, it was that, you know, the caller um, said something halfway into my turn, in, uh, you know, after 30 seconds. Mm. <laughs> and yet that is what people are doing. Interesting. That is so interesting because I think a lot of, I mean, the good call handlers may, as you said, they'll probably just do that intuitively, won't they? And I've seen other examples, yeah, I've seen, yeah. I've seen other examples of similar things like that where, yeah, someone's making like a 999 call or something like that and they're, you know, I don't know, again, domestic abuse or something like that and like the, the person in on the phone from the kind of first responses or whatever is, is asking questions like, um, if the person's in the room with you now, then... Mm -hmm. Well, I can't remember exactly what the instruction was, but it's like trying to make the other person on the other end of the phone have as genuine conversation as possible. But they're saying, you tell me in this kind of language if if this is kind yeah. of going on. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is probably that conversation because what the call taker does is move very quickly into yes, no questions. So they'll yeah. say, are you on your own? Is, is anyone else in the house? Is there any of this? You know, they just they just ask these rapid questions, yeah. which enables the person on the other end, you know, the, the person they need to just say yes, no. And they can also, they, you know, they sound like they're saying yes and no, you know, to a pizza person. And, and what's also really fascinating about this, this particular call is that one imagines an emotional voice, like that somehow that the person must convey it through their emotional valence of their voice but you don't see that either you know it, 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 so the idea that you would see these calls 
as full of emotion or they would ask it this way or that way it, it's just not what actually happens and yet it's totally understandable when we all look at it we'd be like oh yeah i can see now how that's working mm, yeah that's so fascinating um what about uh, two, two questions maybe what i've got time for, for one more quick one um the turing test is something that has always been the sort of yardstick for seeing whether or not a a system is sentient for one of a better phrase or you're human-like if you like um given kind of what we've discussed here around conversation analysis and designing kind of automated interactions between businesses and customers or, or technology and customers do you think the turing test is a valid thing or not it's such a that someone's asked me that question because I just got off uh, a, a meeting with with some colleagues. Um, we're writing a paper about this from a conversation analytic point of view. So maybe I'll just say watch this space rather than trying to remember or at least you know sort of paraphrase quickly. Probably what's quite a complicated answer, but I but I will you know once the paper is out, we we, we can share it on LinkedIn. <laughs> great, great. Thank you, Esther, for that question. And one final question for me: Are you ever not analysing conversations? <laughs> This <laughs> um, is such a great question, and sometimes I like to—I actually like to play with the answer and say I'm always analysing everything. But yeah. the actual truth is, I'm hardly ever analysing anything. But it's interesting <laughs> not because, in my actual day-to-day life. Yeah, no. <laughs> but for example, so I used to produce music way back, and even mm. now today, there's still something in me that is when I hear a song, I'm not really hearing the whole song. I'm always listening for something specific. I'm like, what's the drum? What's happening with the drums here? Yeah. Especially if I've heard the song once, I'll hear it again. I'm like, okay, what's happening here? And I'll try and break it down. Like, what's the structure of this song? Yeah. And then, you know, what yeah. are the? Are there any techniques that are being used here? Is there any ducking happening on these instruments and stuff? And I'm always sort of like, really trying to sort of like climb inside it and figure out what's going on. Same thing yeah. when I watch a film, when I watch a movie, I'm thinking that sound's being added afterwards. Is that real sound? Is that recorded on set? Or is that kind of added after? Is that dialogue yeah. recorded live? So I'm always kind of analysing it like that. So I just imagine yeah. that someone who analyses yeah. conversations for a living, yeah. you must get pretty good at just picking up when a conversation's mm-hmm. a good conversation or a bad conversation or you pick up on something like those issues we've been identifying, you know, like you must pick up on, on stuff yeah. like that obviously a lot more than others will. I mean, it's it, the, the cafe examples where I actually you did actually you know run away, scuttle away and sort of make some field notes. So that I, I that happens occasionally. Uh, it, it probably it'd be a really striking one. Um, I, I am much more like you as your as with your music producing background. If I'm not in the conversation, so yes, certainly if I'm if I'm observe you know if I'm, if I'm observing but not participating or I'm on the train and listening or you know a classic example is in a changing room and hear the conversations that people are having about you know does it what do we what do you think and all and all of that I, I am both interested in as a human being and and sometimes noticing um something more technical about the conversation but if i'm a participant um it's we- you know people will weaponize this against me and say you're always analyzing <laughs> something but i'm like well i'm actually not <laughs> <laughs> I can't go that you can't go that fast when you're in it because of course yeah. you're in it and you've got a stake in it, which is not being a conversation analyst, it's you know, being a, a decent daughter, friend, partner or whatever it might be that you're trying to do at the time. Yeah, yeah. Perfect, perfect. Wicked. Well, Liz, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Uh what I'll do is I'll put the links in the show notes to 
the books, talk, crisis talk, conversation and gender, discursive psychology, discourse and identity. Uh, are those papers you mentioned with, I think it was Marie Flingfelt, I want to say, might, yeah. might pronounce that wrong. Um, that would be great to include here. How to say when it's not okay. We'll put a link to that in there. And I'm yeah. sure I can dig out something from John Heritage and, and stick that in there as well. Also, I'll put a link to Bob Miller's book in case anyone's interested in that. And also, um, I'll also put a link in there to um, Rebecca Evanhoe and Diana Diebel's book because a lot of the stuff that we've alluded yeah. to, I, I, didn't, I didn't mention it at the time, but there's a lot of stuff throughout this conversation, like rather than think about personality, think about the goals of the conversation, those kind yeah. of things. There's a few things that are, that are in there as well, um, which is uh, which is great. So I'll link to that as well. Any any other resources you think that people would check out, Liz, if, uh, if they want to learn more about conversation analysis and, and become better conversation designers? No, I, th- I think the that last book that you mentioned is a great book. Um, there's quite a lot of stuff now available just by just by googling conversation analysis. I think the thing to make sure make sure that you're finding conversation analysis. If you ever see something called conversational analysis, then you'll know it's not conversation analysis. <laughs> um, I have a, a colleague, Charles Antarki, who said, uh, you know, he because we all get we all get frustrated when people call us conversational anal- an, an analysts, and he said. Yeah. It, it's not the analysis that's conversational. It's the conversation that's analyzable. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Perfect. Nice one. Well, Liz Stoko, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we will see you at Unpassed this year, Yeah. which I'm, which I'm excited about, definitely. Yeah, looking forward to it. Nice one. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. That was a really well-attended session. That Lots of comments, lots of questions. Uh, sorry if we didn't manage to get to all your questions, but thank you for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you on the next one next week. See you soon.